I'm also going to share the Zoom, the source links. I know those went out yesterday by email, but they will be on screen and downloaded soon. But And great, I'm just waiting for one or two technical things and then we will, we are indeed good to go. Welcome everyone. This is What Does the Torah Say About Modern Economics? A six part series with Rabbi Jonathan Zering. Today's class is the sixth of six sessions. So thank you for everyone who's been joining, joining along the way. If you're joining on, on both Facebook Live and on Zoom, it's great to have you and you are certainly welcome to join in the discussion. Chats are going to be monitored on both, both platforms, so please feel welcome to use them. Source sheets will also be shared in the chat on both platforms momentarily. And if you are joining us on Zoom, I'm going to send one more round of promotion to panelists. I recommend you take it. It's a great way to see, be seen, ask questions, turn on your camera if you're in a place where you can do that. All I ask is if you are joining on Zoom to please mute yourself when you're not directly asking a question. Otherwise, we get some very strange audio feedback. And today's class is recorded and will be available on Facebook Live momentarily, moments after class. And with that, I, I welcome Rabbi Zering, who we have had the pleasure of learning with, with these okay. past several Thank weeks. you. Um, so thank you to everyone for, um, for coming the last uh, six weeks. Um, to Kayla for all your help. So yeah, so this is the last week. Um, so let's give a two minute recap of, of where we are, um, because obviously we haven't covered uh, all the topics that one could cover in, um, in economics. Obviously, economics covers a lot of, um, of our lives and halacha has what to say um, about many, many aspects of it. But we've tried to focus on broader questions. Um, the first two weeks, we focused on Yovel asking the question um, in week one, does the Torah have a unique economic system or can it be reduced to the other economic systems we know, be they co capitalism, socialism, whatever else you want? Um, in the second week, um, we continued with Yovel and we dealt with the question of if there is something unique that the Torah has to say about economics, um, can it be implemented fairly um, is it or is it fair to implement it in a world which is not completely run under the auspices uh, of the Torah or um, considering the impact of economics in general, does it only make sense to integrate that into a society that lives according to uh, the Torah's principles, both um, theologically um, and, and its social assumptions? Um, we examined the social element more in week three when we dealt with Rebeat, with the laws of interest, um, which, as we saw, distinguished between Jews and non-Jews on the assumption, as the Ramban would have it, that um, that Jews have to uh, treat each other as family uh, and therefore um, actively have to integrate non-purely economic, quote-unquote, concerns uh, into what might otherwise be considered uh, economic. And we saw some other areas of halakha that clearly integrate non-economic factors, uh, such as prohibitions against doing business with idolaters because um, it's showing support uh, for their religion. Um, in week four, we asked the question, um, does... The Torah, do the Torah's laws necessarily have to apply at all times? Um, or is it possible that at least some laws um, are responsive um, rather than um, 
and specifically focused on pricing, where we noted that the Torah clearly says, and we'll get back to this today, that you can't overcharge or underpay, at least deceptively. Um, but um, we asked the question, does that imply that the Torah believes there must be prices in all societies? And we saw a division of opinions on that, with a Russia Weiss taking the position that there does not have to be prices. And the Torah simply says, when there are prices, uh, you have to respect them. Um, and Rosalman Chemi Goldberg and Vosner assuming that no, if the Torah regulates prices, there must be prices. And then last week, uh, we dealt with the question of competition, um, where on the one hand, we saw certain reads that would suggest a certain amount of protectionism uh, in halacha for, for the, you know, let's say small businesses, um, for individual um, store owners and the like. Um, but noted the narrowing of that in classic sources already uh, in favor of benefiting society at large. Um, or the consumers. Um, but then we asked the broader question based on Rabbi Weiss again, which is, um, you know, how do you deal with the fact that the cases that the Torah deals with, or that Halacha deals with in terms of competition are quite narrow um, and deal with store owners who produce the same products um, at basically the same prices. And the only reason there's competition is because of geographic proximity. Um, and does that silence tell us that halacha is specifically um, oriented at a very narrow uh, issue, therefore leaving large swaths of um, significant economic development, such as uh, the introduction of new technologies that might disrupt the economy but and put people out of jobs, but don't directly compete. Um, is that something that halacha doesn't address and basically just assumes uh, can exist? So those are the first five weeks in a nutshell. Um, this week, the last thing we're going to look at is we're going to return to pricing, um, but from a different angle. Um, and that is that, as I mentioned two weeks ago, and I'll pull up the sources now, um, Halach has two distinct laws that relate to pricing. One is the one we dealt with two weeks ago, which is that you can't overcharge or underpay deceptively, um, which, as we said, that the relevance of that law in the modern economy assumes that there are prices. Um, but um, the issue we're going to see today is a little bit different, and that is the issue of, of price controls or price gouging, um, specific or price manipulation perhaps is a better term. Um, namely, regardless of whether you think there is an objective price, which again, we dealt with, um, let's say there's a, I don't know, average price. Um, are you allowed to engage in um, market um, activities within the market that are going to drive the prices, either the objective price or at least the average price or something, drive it up, right? Are you allowed um, to not just take advantage of whatever the price happens to be to make money, but to actually plan um, to create shortage, um, to create scarcity in order to drive prices up? Um, now, there are certain um, businesses that are basically predicated on this. So, for example, diamonds, right? Diamonds in the modern economy, um, they're not actually as rare um, as their pricing would imply, but that's because the, um, the companies that are in charge of, of mining diamonds um, and distributing diamonds set a very strict limit on how much uh, they produce and how much they mine in a given year to create artificial scarcity to leave the prices high. Or in the last few months, or maybe it's been more than months at this point, um, 
we're quite aware of the impact of uh, of artificially creating shortages of oil, um, which OPEC every so often will limit how much they produce in order to keep prices um, high. What does Allah have to say about things like that, right? Because there, um, it's not just a question of are you respecting the prices, but um, are you allowed to take advantage of the realities that scarcity um, because of supply and demand drives prices up? Are you allowed to take advantage of that and actually create that uh, that atmosphere? Um, so that in halacha is called hafka'at sharim, um, price manipulation based on sha'ar, the gate, being where the market was and therefore the price at the gate. Um, and as we'll see, um, the Torah has some quite harsh things. The halacha has some harsh things to say about price manipulation. But we need to figure out what that would say in a modern economy. Um, and we'll see that while at first glance, um, it seems to be quite expansive, um, the limitations that halacha places, that is very quickly going to be called into question. Um, and throughout, I'm going to, while we'll talk about different um, products, I'm going to focus on two, um, which um, I think are quite interesting conceptually um, because of their, um, of just how important they are to life. Um, one is going to be, um, a medicine. Um, and uh, here I really do thank Roy, uh, Mordechai Turchiner, who uh, when I was in Toronto, we, we, we gave, we co-gave series on, on um, at some point on overcharging and related issues. Um, and he gave a, a sheer on the Martin Shkreli case. Um, if you remember that from a few years ago, where, where Shkreli um, bought um whatever company it was and drove the prices of, I think, was it EpiPens or was it insulin? Um, some essential, um, I have to look back what it was. Um, it was one of those two. Um, drove the prices up by like several hundred percent um, as soon as he took over the company. And and um, also the one that I focused on at the time, which was, uh, was real estate, um, right? Was driving real estate prices uh, up, rental and, and buying. Um, okay, so where does the idea of price controls come from in halacha? So really, it emerges from number one um, as follows. In the context of the laws more or less of, of staka and, and usury and the like, the Torah says, <speaking in Hebrew> if, your, if your brother becomes needy, I'm in destitute and falls and he, his hand falls among you, so support him. And don't take interest from him and fear God and your brother shall live with you. Now, this idea that your brother should live with you is taken um, in halachic literature to mean as a, there's a okay, uh, Andrew tells me it was EpiPen. And that was what I thought, but then I second guessed myself the incident, but it was an EpiPen. Okay, thank you. Um, yes. So the idea of that you have to support your brother um, becomes in halacha an instruction not just to give tzedaka, not just give loans, but a broader idea of supporting people financially and therefore um, preventing cases in which um, they will not be able to be supported. Um, and that's sort of the background to the idea of the problem of price gouging and price manipulation. Um, for those of you who are following Yerushalmi Yomi, um, the news cycle began just a few weeks ago. If you're following um, specifically the... Um, the OU and Art Scrolls 
um, cycle, then you'll be going a little slower if you're following the classic Vilna based on the, the Ger Hasidim, then you'll be a little bit ahead. But either way, you will have seen the second passage here um, in the last few weeks. The Yerushalmi has some very harsh things to say about those who engage in price manipulation. So Amar Rabbi Alexandri, Why is the ninth bracha in the Amidah the blessing that deals with uh, sustenance, with livelihood? So the Gemara answers, kol Hashem shover arazim. Because the verse in Tehillim, in Psalm, says that um, the sound of God breaks the cedars. Now this, if you knew the earlier part of the Gemara, the Gemara goes through different kolot. So this is the ninth time that the word kol comes up here. Now why is it that God's voice shattering the cedar trees is a good, is a good uh, symbolic link? to the blessing about sustenance. So the Gemara says, because God is going to shatter and break um, market manipulators, right? So um, the Rushalmi claims that like so definitional is reasonable pricing um, in the economy and so central is it to the ability to have a livelihood and, and, have, a su- and have sustenance that Instead of coming up with like a positive association with the ninth bracha, it says, no, you want to know what connects thematically to the idea of having sustenance, God coming and shattering those who manipulate prices, um, right? So clearly the Rushami has very negative things to say about people who basically like make life unlivable because of, of prices. So let's look now at the central Talmudic passage. And as we'll see, Despite that maybe strong rhetoric by the Yerushalmi, um, this law is going to be a little bit more limited than that, okay? So the Gemara says as follows, this is Baba Batra Tzadi Amabet, goes on to Tzadi Aleph Amad Aleph, that continues right in the next source. Tan Rabbanat, Utsare Perot, those who hoard produce, right? So they artificially create scarcity. Umalave Baribit, and the people who lend money with usury, um, and the people who who um, make weights smaller, right? So dishonest weights, sharim and price manipulators, um, so about them, we say the very, very biting psukim in Amos. That Amos says these are people who present themselves as religious because they keep Shabbat. But all they can say all Shabbat is they look at their watch and they say, when is Shabbat over? I, I obviously can't do business on Shabbat, but I need Shabbat to be over. I need Rosh Chodesh to be over because I don't work on Rosh Chodesh. They're really, really from. But I need Shabbat to be over so that I can steal and falsify my weights and cheat people. Like I would never do business on Shabbat. So I need Shabbat to be over so I can cheat. And about those people, God says, the God swears by the pride of Yaakov, by Jacob, I swear I will never forget what they do. So one of these horrible people um, 
or more than one, are people who manipulate prices, either through hoarding or other ways of price manipulation. So the Gemara now clarifies, Otsrei Peirot, what does it mean to hoard produce? Kigonman, who is that? Amar Rabbi Yochanan, Kigon Shabtai Otser Peirot. It's like this person, Shabtai, and he would buy and hoard large amounts of produce and then sell it later. And this was the opposite of the father of Shmuel, Avoah de Shmuel, Mazman Lupere Betara Kharfa, Kitara Kharfa. He would sell produce that was in the early parts of the season when things were still cheap because there was abundance. He would sell them at the cheap price. Right? He wouldn't wait till they were more expensive. He wouldn't artificially hoard. When there was a glut in the market and he had a lot, he would sell for the price. Shmuel Bray, his son, Shmuel, Afla Kitara Kharfa. But Shmuel would hold on to the produce and sell it later on where things were more expensive. Now, he wouldn't hoard per se, but he wouldn't sell during the cheaper period. And even though the Gemara seems to think that that's okay, right? He's not actually hoarding. He's not creating scarcity. He's just choosing not to sell when things are cheap. Still, the Gemara says that's not the ideal. And Shalchumitam, the scholars in Israel, would say, Tava da'aba midivra. The father acted better than the son. Um, and why? My time, atara deravach ravach. Because in the end of the day, um, the Shmuel's father, by making things available when things were cheap, was helping people more. Shmuel wasn't hurting them per se, but it was actually actively good to sell things and let there be extra in the market so there would be a period when people could buy at a cheap price. Right. So the Gemara here, right, seems to have three levels, right? The pious thing to do is to actually sell when things are cheap at a cheap price. There's the prohibited and cursed thing to do, which is to hoard and to create artificial scarcity, and then not creating scarcity, but choosing to sell. When prices are higher, that seems to be permitted, but you know maybe not the most pious thing to do. Right? So, the, so the Talmud introduces these three levels. Um, now again, um, Rav, like Shmuel, permits this sort of middle level. And he says, listen, I can't artificially drive up prices. So the, the hoarder that we talked about before would buy up everybody so to create scarcity and then sell at a higher price. Rav says you can't do that, but you are allowed to hold on to your own produce right, and choose to sell it when there is less available at a higher price. Again, that's that middle level. And that is permitted. And Taninami Hachi, and similarly, we have a brighter to that level. You are not allowed to hoard um, fruit and things that that life depends on them. So oil and wine and flour, right? These were staples of life, right? Now, flour and oil, we know, but wine was also a staple of life uh, for many reasons, um, partially because it provided a tremendous amount of calories um, in storable 
right? In, in storable form, right? Because uh, wine could last a long time because of the fermentation. It wouldn't go bad. Um, um, you know, possibly also, um, as we see later on in history, though this probably isn't as true in the early parts, um, it had to do with uh, with contamination of uh, of water. That's not as true in the time of Chazal, though in the medieval period, um, that is true that alcohol is important for, for liquid um, because it's non-contaminated. Um, avaltavlin, but spices are considered luxuries. So avaltavlin, kamonu pilplin, so spices. Um, um, and um, and pepper and cumin, um, mutar. And when do we say that there's any limits on hoarding? That's if you buy up the market. But if you just hold on to your own produce and choose not to sell until the price is higher, mutar, that's permitted. Right? And then the Gemara says that leading up to Shemitah, where you're going to have three years that you need produce, right? The year six, you plan for that year. Then year seven, you need because you didn't plant because it's Shemitah. And year eight, since you weren't allowed to plant in year seven, you're going to need produce from year six. So if you're a farmer in year six, you're allowed to store three years worth of produce because you need it for yourself. And then the Gemara says, in the years of famine, even a small amount of caribs, you would not be allowed to, to hoard. Could you bring curse to the prices? And Amr later, Biosi Rechanina, the Fugeshame Pukatzer Liper Shaloshanimer, Shvidushvidi, then quotes a case of someone who hoarded for the Shemitah purposes. Okay, now from this first passage, we learn two things, or a few things, right? One, there's three levels. There's the prohibited type of hoarding, which is buying up the market and artificially creating scarcity. There's the ideal pious thing, which is sell as soon as you have, right? When things are cheap, sell them cheap. That does not is not expected of people. What is expected of people is to not hoard artificially, but if you want to hold on to your own things and sell it when you can get a better price for it, the Talmud assumes that that is permitted. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is that the Talmud distinguishes between um, luxuries and necessities of life, right? Because the Talmud says that this entire discussion of, of hoarding is only oil, wine, and flour, because those are necessities. But other things don't have these limitations. Now, that is what's picked up in the next source. Um, there's a few lines in between that I skipped. But on the next Amur in the Gemara, the Gemara says, Tanu Rabbanan, ein mistakrin be'aretz Yisrael, bidvarim she'esh ben chai nefesh, kegon yeinot shmanim esalatot. You don't make excess profit. It says profit, but excess profit, because just like by... Um, um, oh, nah, ah, by overcharging, the magic number is a sixth. So here as well, the number is a sixth. Um, you're not allowed to make more than a sixth profit. Exactly how you define that is difficult, but a sixth profit on those things that are essential to life. Right? 
Now the Gemara says, how could that be? Relazim and Azariah would profit on these. So, Savar Lakrabi Huda, Bishemin Batre, Relazar, Ben Azariah, Shriach, Mishcha. Right? So he says, uh, sorry, he holds like Rabbi Yehuda, who says that wine, wine is different. You, right, the original position in the Gemara says that wine is a necessity of life. Rabbi Yehuda says wine is not. Excessive wine leads to licentiousness, and therefore wine is considered problematic or very, right, not just luxury, but problematic. And as we've already seen, non-essential items, you're allowed to profit from. Tanarab, now, in Elazar and Azariah's place, oil was so common, he was allowed to profit from it because there was never going to be um, a shortage. Fine. Tanarabana. Ain mistakrein pa'amayim bibetzim. So the normal amount that you're allowed to benefit is a sixth. The Talmud now introduces a middle category for eggs. Eggs, you're allowed to profit 100%. Um... Amar Mari Bar Mari Pliga Barabu Shmuel, Tadamar Al Chad, Trey Chadamar, Tagar Lichagara. So they disagree what it means double. So either it means you can sell it for double the price you paid. Um, the other possibility is that eggs should not be sold from the wholesaler to a retailer who will then pass it on. Right? There shouldn't be two stages of um, distribution because that will drive the prices up because everyone needs to make money in the district, right? In the in the chain of distribution. Um, and therefore you're only supposed you sell it straight to the consumer. Um, and the issue of high prices is so important that even on Shabbat, you're allowed to um pray and have the community pray, even though we don't normally pray for our personal needs on Shabbat, high prices is so important that um, it even allows um, uh, crying on Shabbat. And then the Gemara gives another exception of things that, uh, um, to this in terms of certain clothing. Okay. Now, what does this mean, right? So what do we learn from, from this second source? So here we learn that, yes, there is a limit that these rules only apply to luxury items. But now we discover that there are in-between things that are not luxury, but not, not luxury. In the time of the Gemara, that was eggs. And therefore, there is a certain amount of limits, either in terms of how much you're allowed to profit, 100%, or how many times you can pass it along the distribution lines, which will automatically drive up prices. But the limit is not the same as the things that are actually essential. If I just skip forward for a second um, to... Second. Yeah, if you look here in 18, right, the SMA who's one of the main commentaries on Choshen Mishpat, on the, um, the section of Shulchan Aruch that deals with monetary law. He summarized this and he says, it's clear that there's three categories you have to keep in mind. The primary things that life depends upon, like wine, oil, and flour, 
You can make one sixth profit and that's it. Things that are not essential at all. Like cosmetics, uh, incense. You can make as much money off of them as you want. We don't care. Even many, many times the principle. Things that are necessary for food but are themselves not essential. Like spices. And the like. You can make up to 100% profit and no more. Okay? So if I stop there for a minute, what are your impressions or questions about what does this um, what are these set of laws and what is the what are these three categories, both in terms of the three categories of produce, right? Essentials, quasi-essentials, and non-essentials, as well as the three part the tripartite division that we had in the Gemara in terms of hoarding, um, selling at the cheapest price, or not hoarding, but choosing to sell your own produce at a higher price. What do those two um, standards tell us about the types of concerns that the Torah has um, in terms of the economy. Um, okay. Um, any thoughts, right? What does this tell us? What is this, um, or any questions, right? What, what, what do you think about when you see these two, two standards? Um, Um, okay, so I mean, I'll tell you what I think when I when I see this. Um, any, any, I'll give it another minute. Anyone? Um, so what I see it is as follows, right? Um, on the one hand, it's clear as we've talked about in the past. Uh, wait, I have a comment. Right. So first of all, there's an essential between there's a difference between essentials and non-essentials. Now, what does this tell us? Right. So I think right if you think about what it tells, it's actually quite profound. Right? I mean, the first thing the Chazal are telling us, right, the Talmud is telling us is, listen, there's a balance in the economy. On the one hand, we respect the right of people who work hard either to plant and be, right, to plant things or to be merchants and to, you know, travel, collect merchandise, distribute, take on the risk, all that stuff. We respect their right to make money. On the other hand, we recognize that there are consumers um, and consumers really do depend on the producers and the sellers. Um, and there is a certain amount of responsibility from the producers and from the sellers to ensure that people have access to the things they need. Now, how do you balance that? So the Talmud seems to balance that in two ways, right? One is to say, listen, if things are luxury items, then the producer and these or the seller owes nothing fundamentally to the consumer, right? If you're selling a luxury item, so you have every right to say, listen, I worked hard to find this, right? I really don't care. Right, I don't care. I'm going to drive the prices up. If I sell diamonds, 
And I want to create an artificial scarcity so I don't have to work as hard mining diamonds. So you don't need a diamond. You don't want a diamond? Don't get a diamond, right? You don't want a tennis bracelet? So don't get a tennis bracelet. It doesn't matter, right? I don't have to work extra hard to create a glut in the market, right? If I'm selling luxury goods and I work and you want to buy it, so you pay what I'm willing to sell it for. At the opposite extreme, that sort of cavalier attitude doesn't work for bread, right? Let's, right, bread and fine, flour in the time of the Gemara, but let's say bread, right? You can't say, well, I worked hard for the bread and therefore I worked hard for all the food to starve. <laughs> you don't want to pay what I, what, what I have to so starve. I don't care, right? The, when it comes to essentials, the Gemara is not willing to do that. And the Gemara says, no, no, no. Not only, um, right, you, yeah, you can't make that much money. You choose to engage in selling essentials. Then you're limited to a sixth, right? You're limited to a sixth. Um, and then the Gemara recognized there are in-between cases where like eggs, right? The Gemara says, listen, I mean, eggs, well, you don't need eggs every day, but like, it's not really fair to say, so only the rich will have eggs. I mean, right, they're in-between categories, right? Um, and you see this tug of war, right? Where on the one hand, we recognize that people work for what they what they have and what they're selling and they have the right to make money. On the other hand, they owe something to the community. And the Gemara is trying to balance that. Now, it happens to be that the Gemara balances it in a very narrow way from the consumer's perspective. It basically says that the only thing that you really owe consumers um, is to provide essentials at reasonable prices. Um, the second thing the Gemara notes is that there's a difference between artificially driving up prices, right, and taking advantage of the realities of the market, right, where the Gemara says that if I artificially drive prices up, I buy everything up in the market, and then I sell at a high price, that's really problematic. But if I say, listen, I could sell it now at a lower price, or I could hold on to it. Now, it's not really going to hurt the consumer. Right, but it'll help me. I'm allowed to do that. Right? Maybe it's not the most pious thing to do, but there is a recognition. There's a difference between trying to make as much money as I can without affecting the market in general and controlling the market in a way that right, is right, unfair. Um, Right, so Thomas says the problem is the ones working in small margin products may move to the large ones right now. Yes, the problem with this, right, and this is just a reality you have to contend with, is that um, this type of conceptualization um, requires, I'll put it a little bit differently than Thomas, but unless you assume a certain amount of altruism amongst your producers, what you might end up with is a market in which people only want to sell non-essentials. And therefore, that creates our scarcity because no one wants to sell essentials because you don't make money. Now, we had this in Israel a little while ago um, with, with butter, because butter is one of these price-controlled things. Um, and because of whatever host of factors um, happened, um, this was about two years ago, maybe three already, no, three, I think it was pre-COVID. Um, the... Price, um, the government set price on butter was less 
than it actually costs to produce butter. Um, so people just stopped selling butter. You just couldn't find butter. And the only butter you could find were butters that were exceptions to the price control rules in Israel, um, like imported butter or uh, butter with less salt, right? Because the, the price controls are on very specific butters. Um, but if you, you know, if they were like lower fat or uh, artisanal or low salt or high salt or whatever, right? They were different than the normal, then you were allowed to sell it. And that you could find because it was double the price. So yeah, there is the problem where even if we say, well, price controls are only going to be on essentials, um, what that does is it might um, just make people not want to sell the essentials because it's not worth it. Um, and that's just a reality we have to own up to, right? That the, the halachas model really does lead to that, to that possibility. Um, okay. With that background, I want to briefly talk about two cases that I think are quite telling. Um, one is real estate, um, because um, for most people, not everybody, I understand that, but for most people, um, you know, even, you know, a 20% increase um, in food, even essential food is probably, for most people, is not going to make them starve. I understand there are people who li live, you know, down to the last dollar or shekel. And when they raise the, the price of the loaf of bread from, you know, six shekel to seven shekel or whatever, um, that's going to break the bank. Um, but for most people, that's not what we're talking about. But the two areas that are potentially essential that even people who are relatively well off can be basically driven to um, to to poverty um, because of these two things um, in the modern economy are are real estate, right? Is the inability to rent or buy a house, um, or the ability or the inability to get medicine, especially that which is life saving. And therefore, I'm trying to figure out what an essential product might look like in the modern economy. Um, I think is a really important uh, is a really important question, and these are two I think good test cases. So I'm going to run through this a little bit fast because you know it took us some time to sort of you know paint the broad strokes um, in the Talmud. Um, let's turn first to to land. Okay, so land, um, as we talked about um, in the past, um, right? There are laws against overcharging. I briefly mentioned at the time, right, that the rules of overcharging, as we have here again in six is that less than one-sixth, the sale stands, exactly one-sixth to return the overcharge, more than a sixth, it'd be it'll be returned. But the Gemara says, or the Mishnah says, that there's an exception. Karka, land, doesn't have the, lo the laws of Ona'a. Um, now, there's a machloket in the, in the Rishonim, what that means. Does that mean that when it comes to overcharging, if the going rate for, land, for a house, let's say, is $100,000, and I charge a million, that's okay. There's no ona at all. Um, or as the riff has it, there's not the normal laws of ona, but there is a 200%, right? So if it's $100,000 and I sell it for 190, I'm fine. If I sell it at 200, um, it's the problem. It's a problem. Um, the Gemara in number seven says the reason is simply because the Torah says that it's when you buy something from your friend's hand. And from this, the Talmud derives that um, it's only things that can be 
you know, handed out hand-to-hand, chattel, but not land. Uh, and then the Gemara introduces the notion that the same laws that apply to buying apply to rental. Okay? Now, um, <laughs> here's the problem. On the one hand, having a place to live is arguably an essential. Okay? Arguably. Probably good arguably, right? But arguably, it is essential. Now, we can quibble about what it means, you know, how, what type of house do you need, right? You know, do you need a bedroom for every child, and a bedroom for every two children, right? What is essential? How many bathrooms do you need? But fundamentally, having a place to live is a basic necessity of life. However, one, we've seen that it's the Gemara is pretty limited in terms of what it includes, in terms of essentials, right? Basically flour and oil and wine. So you got to figure out what else goes into that level of necessity, right? Because having a place to live is pretty essential, but you know, maybe not as essential as, as basic food stuff. That's the first problem. The second is that in the laws of, of um, overcharging, um, we discover that overcharging doesn't apply um, to land, um, either buying or renting. And as I mentioned in number nine, there's a dispute what that means. Um, so the uh, Shulchan Aruch rules that that means um, even infinite, it doesn't matter, right? Even 10 times, it, it doesn't matter, right? Land just doesn't have a price in halacha. Um, the Rama quotes the, the possibility that it's it's 200%, right? Now, so what does that say um, about, um, so what does that say about land? Um, add to that the following. Um, I probably should have said this earlier, but the Gemara says, right, that you're not allowed to price gouge. Okay, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> what are you going to do about it if, you do. Um, so the answer is, um, as the Me'iri clarifies in five, the courts have to enforce it. Right? Um, meaning on the things that we actually care about controlling the prices, there's an obligation for us to, um, to enforce it. Um, no, I, I did put it. I knew I put the sixth thing about this. It's, it's here in, in number 14. I just moved it um, farther down. Um, so what do we say, right? So what do we say about, let's say rent, right? With this background, right? With the three-part distinction between luxuries, sort of luxuries and non-luxuries, um, but the recognition that land um, in halacha is very hard to price. And that means both buying and renting land. Um, so what would either halacha say or even if halacha doesn't directly say anything, what would a halachic-inspired policy look like in terms of rent control uh, and the like? Okay? Because I think that's an interesting question to test what these theories might look like. Um, so I gave you, starting in 19, a few um, 20th, 19th, 20th century suggestions exactly about this point. So if Yosef Elio Henkin who was the leading halachic authority in America before Moshe Feinstein, um, 
and even after that was a very, very major posik, um, though he's probably less known now than, than Rosha Feinstein. Uh, he weighs in on this in 19, and he says, Chok hadirot shelamem shalahu yashar. The government's laws of tenancy, of, of rent control and the like, are just. Mitukan, umikubal, they're acceptable. Bifrat barim gdolo, especially in big cities. Kihum mechuvan neged mafkie sharim uposhte arot aniyim. Because they are targeted against those who gouge prices and skin the hides of the, the, of the indigent. Okay, that's his mashal, right? That they literally take the skins off the back of the poor. And even though you'll tell me, but isn't this oppressive on, let's say, not corporate landlords, but like individual landlords who maybe have one extra apartment that they rent out and that's their money, right? That it comes in. So by controlling prices, aren't you hurting that person? He says, maybe, but he says, he nay king derech hachok. That's, that's the way law works. That sometimes it's unfair for an individual, but you have to follow the majority. Which is apparently luxury, right? The fact that um, the law distinguishes between, let's say, price-controlled houses and luxury houses. That doesn't weaken the law. It makes it better. It specifically pushes it towards justice. Right? So Rav Yosef takes, and again, he's not really saying this is the halacha. He was asked more broadly, are price control laws just such that they should be recognized and embraced from a halachic perspective? Okay? So he's asking more about the spirit of the law. Um, and how it relates to, let's say, Dina de Malchuta Dina, right? Recognizing the laws of the government, right? Because certain things, if they're considered so unfair, halacha may not recognize them. But he says, no, the idea of price controls in houses makes sense. And what's his logic? His logic is very simple. He says, look, halacha recognizes that when it comes to essentials in life, um, we are biased in favor of the consumer. And therefore, he says, if there is a law on the books that says that we will have certain limits on, on rent, right, rent control, specifically on non-luxury homes, since that law basically benefits the poor in maintaining a basic subsistence, that is in line with the spirit of the law or may, and the letter of the law that we have with price controls. And even though it's true that you will sometimes find a case of a landlord who, you know, you know, this is what they they're, they're planning to retire on, right? Instead of investing in stocks or right? instead of buying, um, you know, having a 401k or whatever with stocks in it, they uh, invested in buying an extra apartment and they plan on living off the rent. Um, so they're not rich. And by limiting how much they can make, you're really limiting how much they have to retire on. He says, I understand that. But law is made for the majority, and fundamentally, price controls on non-luxury houses um, and rentals, he thinks, is in the spirit and letter of the law, right? So this is how he balances, right, that idea of necessity 
um, and the responsive and our responsibilities towards the consumers when it comes to essential goods, which he is includes rent within that, um, recognizing that it can hurt um, the landlords and recognizing that there might be some landlords who can't even really afford it. But he says the law is allowed to make the assessment that we prioritize the consumers when on balance, the consumers are worse off right, than the landlords. And this is an essential or close to essential of life. Right? That is um, the way Rav Henkin saw this um, issue. Um, however, Rav David Menacha Munish Babad, writing in Poland and Ukraine in the 19th, 20th century, goes the exact opposite direction, right? And he says, no, right? The, the, the people who are being heard here unfairly are not the renters, they're the landlords. He says, nowadays the logic is the opposite. This is injustice against, it's cheating the landlords. It fulfills what the, the verse says that your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes and you won't eat therefrom, right? I quoted the whole Pasuk here. Strangers are controlling their property. And there's no one to save them, right? And as Thomas said before, it's not just that. Right? It doesn't help the renters, right? If the landlords go bankrupt and can't rent out their property, they just can't afford it. It only helps. It also only helps people who are price controlled from the past, right? Who managed to get in on a rent controlled property. But what about new renters, right? If it's not worth it for landlords to rent out their property because they're not making any money, right? It's one thing, right? You know, I remember my grandfather lived in a rent controlled apartment from when he moved into this new apartment, I don't know how many years ago, until the, until he died, right, in his 90s, right? So it was rent controlled for whatever the, I don't know, decades that he lived in that apartment, right? So for him, rent control was great. But if, you know, if I have, you know, a property and it's, I'm not allowed to make money. I'm barely allowed to make money off of it. I might say, listen, it's not worth my time. It's such a headache being a landlord. You know what? Or maybe I'll have to downsize because I can't afford to live in my house if I can't make money off my apartment, right? So I'll sell off my house and I'll, uh, right, I'll live in my own smaller apartment. And then, right, whatever, there won't be something available for renters because landlords won't want to open up properties if it isn't worth it for them. So therefore, he says, There always new people who need a rent. If you rent control things, it's not worth it because what are people going to do? Right? Well, right? There isn't going to be many properties left. And as we know, this is what happens, right? People will only build, right? luxury apartments because luxury apartments don't have rent controls and then the poor people still won't be able to buy or rent 
They won't be able to find anything, which is unlike before the war. Right now, he's writing in Poland. He says, besides, all these ideas come from the communists and the socialists. It's just to pressure the rich and steal all the money from the rich. Communism, socialism is against the Torah, right? So here, um, Rav Babad is at the opposite extreme. He says, what are you talking about, right? And exactly what Thomas said before, he said, listen, the danger with price controls is that you motivate people to only sell luxury items and to not even worry about non-luxury items. And here he's going farther. He says, look, you think you're helping the, you're helping potential renters. You're not. Landlords are just going to say, it's not worth my time to, to, produce minimalist apartments. I'm only gonna buy, I'm only gonna sell and rent luxury apartments where I can actually make money. Right? So you have Ruf Hankin who says price controls, at least on non-luxury apartments, that's the right balance. Right? It advantages the consumer because it's a necessity of life. Riv Babad goes on the opposite extreme and says no, right? It's it's missing the fact that you're just motivating people to not sell or rent the basic necessity of life. And in a very fascinating article by Rav Elimelech Friedman um, in Hapardes, um, I don't know who he is. He was some mid-century American posek. Um, he says that he knows in his neighborhood of tenants who were basically, you know, so afraid that their their landlords um, would not be able to make ends meet um, and therefore would stop renting or whatever, that they went to their landlords and said, raise my rent, right? Raise my rent. Okay, I've never heard of such a thing happening, but he attests to the fact, I've never, never in my life have I heard of this, but okay, fine. And here you see, right, this tension. Then on the one hand, Rav Henkin sees rent control as a logical application of the laws against, uh, the laws in favor of price controlling necessities of life, even if it disadvantages some landlords here and there. And Rav Babad says, no. Right. There's a reason if I want to extrapolate from what he's saying, there's a reason that the Talmud limits price control, right, price manipulation um, prohibitions to very, very, very specific cases. And that is because you want to motivate people to feel like it's worth it to sell and to rent. And the more controls you put on, there's always a cost. Right, and you see that right. Rev Babad and Rev Henkin are pulling on the two implications in the sugya. On the one hand, recognizing that it's important to provide necessities of life. On the other hand, recognizing that the Talmud tried to be very limited, um, right? Because even eggs, the Gemara says, well, I need it for food, but it's not a, right. So it's a middle category. We're very limited in terms of what we put price controls on because there's a cost that it motivates people to say it's not worth it to to rent to sell. Um. So Thomas says that there should be a solution, one second, um, that maybe you could give a subsidy to those who need, right? Now, that's possible, right? It could be that if you want to balance those two things, that maybe the right answer is something else, right? Is a subsidy or, I don't know, uh, a universal basic income, I don't know, come up with your, you know, your preferred solution, right? It could be that that would motivate you to find a different solution. Okay, we have five minutes left. So very quickly, medicine. What would we say about medicine? So medicine has yet a um, another factor, and that is that healing people is a mitzvah. Uh, so Rashi here in number 22 um, is commenting on the Talmud's conviction that even the best of doctors 
right? Even the best of doctors go to hell. Um, and this is a very cryptic statement in the Gemara. And Rashi says, why? Um, so Rashi says the reason is because sometimes a doctor is able to heal the poor or the people who can't afford to pay for medical care, and they don't. And if you're that type of doctor, right, then Gehenna is the right place for you, right? So Rashi clearly says that not only um, is healing a mitzvah, but specifically, um, and that becomes clear number four, right, that even if you make a vow that you're not, that even if someone has a vow that they're not going to benefit from someone, a doctor is allowed to heal the person who, who forbade uh, himself from benefiting from him because um, it's a mitzvah and mitzvah aren't within that, right? So you have a mitzvah to heal people. And we specifically say that the epitome of evil, according to Rashi, is a doctor who could heal the poor and chooses uh, and chooses not to. Um, I'm going to skip a few of these sources, but you can look through them that talk about charging for mitzvot um, in general. Um, now, if you look in 26, Rabbi Yosef Karo, I'll read it in English because we're really running short here. Um, he says, a doctor may not take, right? May, from the letter of the law, a doctor is not allowed to take payment for knowledge and teaching, right? Because it's such a mitzvah to heal people, um, you're not actually allowed to take money to be a doctor. What we do is we call tzarbatala. You pay for the fact that you put in effort and that you're not doing other things, right? If I'm a successful doctor, I could also be a successful lawyer. So pay me what I would make as a lawyer, but you aren't allowed to conceptualize it as you're paid for, you're paying to be healed. Um, and based on that, he further says that one who has medicine, which his ill friend needs, may not elevate the price beyond that which is appropriate. Further, even if they offer a high price because they cannot find medicine other than with him at present, he may only take their value. Right? So when it comes to medicine, you're not allowed. Right? Shulchan Aruch seems to include that in the cases of things that you can't price manipulate. And even if the price is, he, you could get whatever money you want for it. He says you're not allowed to, right? You're not allowed to. You have to sell it at the actual price, right? You're not allowed to take the higher price, even if they offer it to you. Um, so based on this, there's a good argument um, to say that medicine as well, right? That if there was something in the modern economy um, that halacha should, um, or a halacha influenced policy should put price controls on, presumably it would be medicine or at least life-saving medicine because it's a dabar she'esh It's something that life depends on um, literally. Um, now, just the last thing that's worth noting is, well, what can we do about it? So as I said, the answer is, at least in a halachic society, we can coerce people, right? We can coerce people. Uh, and in 28, you see that the Ramah Ramosha Israelis says that that's true of a mohel, right? If no one wants to be a mohel and there's someone who can be a mohel, we force him, right? We force the mohel to perform the mitzvah. Um, and Ray Waldenberg, writing in the 20th century, says that that logic um, applies as well if there's only one doctor, right? If there's only, you know, if there's only one doctor, even if the person can't afford to pay, uh, so we force the doctor to perform the medical procedure even for free, right? So you see that right, Waldenberg very, very much understands uh, that medicine and medical care is also davar shi'esh b'chayi nefesh, 
at least basic, um, and argues that that should be um, within the things that we actually coerce about. Um, so a Torah-inspired society, if it was only going to put price controls on things that save lives, medical care uh, for a Waldenberg, and medicine would be uh, one of those. Now, again, of course, you're going to have to ask the same question, which is, well, how do you compensate the doctors? How do you motivate doctors to not go into you know, lucrative luxury fields like whatever, plastic surgery and things like that, um, if you're not paying, um, right? If you're not allowed to make money from, from basic doctors, right? How do you um, prevent people from only selling, you know, uh, whatever diet pills or whatever it might be and putting their, you know, all their know-how into things like that? The same things are going to, um, to be relevant um, but it does seem that there is a logic, at least, to say that if there was something in the modern economy um, that a Torah-inspired um, policy would would encourage some sort of controls, um, medical care would be it. But obviously, this is much more complicated, um, which is why the question of socialized medicine um, is right such a heated political thing. Because on the one hand, you want people to have access to medical care, um, definitely basic medical care. On the other hand, you recognize that once you start price controlling things, uh, you may just drive people out of the field and and um, and you don't value people's expertise, um, right? So there is a tension there. Um, as you well know, in Israel, this is not really a political issue because it's a given. Um, but in America, obviously, this is a, this is a heated issue. Um, but at any rate, what I wanted to show you was um, right these different perspectives. Uh, in the medicine, we didn't really see both perspectives. You saw an example from Ray Waldenberg that embraces the idea that this really falls within the category of things that should be controlled. Um, but when it comes to rent, we saw um, that that tension between providing people with the basic necessities of life and recognizing that we should be very hesitant before we put those limitations in place because they might do more harm than good. Um, we saw that tension between Ray Babad and Rav Henkin where they come on opposite sides of this question, at least when it comes to, to rentals. Um, highlighting right really the complexity of a of the Torah's vision where on the one hand yes we do recognize that people have a right to certain basic necessities but we also recognize that we have to be very 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 careful in what we count as a necessity um because what that can do to the economy can be really really damaging um and balancing those two factors is really really quite difficult um and that's at least in the case of rent we we saw an example of of postgame on both sides of the of the uh, debate, um, by medicine we saw an example of someone who embraces um, the idea that medicine falls in the category that should be controlled. Um, but again, just like by real estate um, and rental, you we saw a position that went to the opposite extreme. You could you could imagine someone um, constructing a similar argument. Um, in the context of healthcare, though, obviously there's a lot of complexity. But we're already two minutes over time, so I'm going to have to stop. Um, thank everyone for coming and learning with me for the last six weeks. Um, for me, it's just great to rethink about these issues uh, and learn it with you. Um, and you can obviously always follow up with me um, by, by email, which is at the top of, uh, of the source sheet, um, I think. Let me make sure I put my email at the top of the source sheet. Yes, my email is at the top of the source sheet. Um, you can email me there. Um, and if you have any questions now, then please... Um, please ask. And yes, the sources are there uh, as well. Again, in the chat with my email and with some of the sources that we didn't get to. Um, okay, I'll stop sharing the sources. And any questions, comments?
um, this week or any of the last uh, last five. Yeah, uh, pretty quiet in Facebook chat, and hmm. it. I don't know, like I was thinking of responses like the shift sh things that shift in from essential to non-essential categories, but it was uh, I don't know I was hard it was hard for me to come up with an example of that. No, also, no. So I, I know. Look, I agree with you. Meaning, I think nowadays, right, an argument could be made, an argument like, is flour really is an essential, right? In a world where people minimize their carb consumption, right, it's totally normal for some people to, right, you know, Raviol Benon has an article about this in the context of benching, where he says, you know, there was a time when everyone had bread at every meal, so you were thanking God with all the amazing um, praises that are in benching. Um, twice a day, but what do you do in a in a world where people, you know, many people for whatever reason, basically only eat bread on Shabbat, right? Um, so you, right, we could ask, right, is bread really the right thing to be price controlled? You know, is that really the essential? Um, um, right, and uh, wait, and Noah says here, um, Right, the pasta prices went up, but gluten free stayed the same. Yes, I, I did notice that actually. Yes, that that regular price, that pasta went up, but gluten free. Right, the prices just seemed closer to each other. So, non celiacs learned what it was like to pay to pay celiac prices. Uh, yes, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, is it really? You know, we really do have to ask, right? Is it like wine? I would say that nowadays is very hard to call it an essential, right? Very very hard. Oil, okay, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, no, I, I could say like even with oil, oil, I could see, but wine right nowadays, I think most people is. would agree that wine is a luxury, yeah. right? You know, the reasons that it was, you know, again, the main reason that wine was not a luxury then was because it was an equal, easily stored, high caloric content food. Nowadays, I mean, who would argue that wine, bread, we can argue about, oil probably is essential, but wine? Right. Nowadays, I think most people would say wine. No. On the other hand, eggs. Right. You know, eggs nowadays, uh, you know, I don't know. Right. Eggs are I mean, sure, they're probably still in that middle category. But like if you take Israel as an example, you know, the things that are price controlled are bread, milk, butter, um, certain types of cheese. Right. And eggs. Right. Is that a good list? I mean, it's not a terrible it's not a terrible list. It's not a terrible list. Um, you know, is it an obvious list? No, um, but it's not a terrible list. Now, it happens to not work very well because because of our price control on eggs, um, we have like the fourth highest price of eggs in the world or something like that, which only highlights the danger in the price controls, um, right? So, you know, but again, in and, and again, that, that, that practical issue is really important, right? That recognizing that, Price controls might make things worse and not better. It is a part of the equation. And, you know, in Israel, that's what, like I said, that's what happened with eggs. With butter, it made it that we just didn't have butter, um, you know, for a while. And that was crazy. Um, so obviously, right, we both need to debate what are essentials. And as I see, we'd have, you know, um, love to have some vegans in the chat. Uh, I, I cannot contribute on the vegan thing. Um, I'm, I am a vegetarian. I am not a vegan. So... Um, I, I cannot weigh in on what uh, what uh, what would be essential for vegans, um, though I, I'm happy to talk about it. Right. And, you know, and yet, yeah, look, we, we do have to talk about what about essentials for. You know, for unique populations. 
right? So like there's been a lot of discussion in Israel about the celiac question, right? Which is why is it that if the government is already price controlling bread um, because it thinks that bread isn't essential, so then why is it that right that gluten free bread is not similarly price controlled, right? And then right you have to ask, right? Do we what do we do with something that is deemed essential, but for particular parts of the population um, need to be produced in special ways, right? Is that something that you take into account? Um, do you, on the one hand, benefit the consumer and say, well, people who are celiac and can't afford gluten-free bread, that's a big problem. Or do you say, yeah, but producing gluten-free bread is, you know, is, you know, has much less ability for profit because it's a smaller market. Uh, and therefore, you know, we can't benefit the consumer because then no one will want to produce it. Right. You know, that's a real tension that we that you'd, you'd have to uh, you have to deal with. Um, um, are there price controls on beans aside from soybeans in the United States? I have no idea. I don't know. No. I don't know. Like in Israel, it happens to be they're very cheap and people who right whenever you see people who are making suggestions about how to get along, you know, living financially smarter in Israel, as the Facebook group is called. Um, one of them is to live on more Middle Eastern diets, um, but they're so cheap, even without the price controls. I mean, they're yeah. just so cheap in Israel. Mm -hmm. um, like, I, mean, I don't know how cheap- I mean, Also, soybeans comes up because in the US it's very subsidized because it's not just for human eating, but you know- Correct, for animals as well. Um, right, and allergies are also right, an interesting question, right? Meaning same problem, right? Producing um, allergy-free um, food can be very, very cost. Um, it's very, very costly because you know you need to have sterile environments. Um, but that doesn't mean that the food is less essential for the people who have the allergies. And again, that same tension where you know how much you benefit the consumers, how much you recognize, especially when it's a small segment of the population. Um, you know, you can't expect companies to, you know, um. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a hard question. It, you know, it is a hard question. Um, and that, you know, what I wanted to do today really was just highlight the complexity that, that the Gemara is trying to balance, um, you know, on the one end, not being too intrusive because of what it could do to the market and how much it could disincentivize people from selling and recognizing that there have to be some things that are accessible to people. Um, but defining what that is is very hard, right? Meaning the three examples in the Gemara at least one of them definitely doesn't go in that list in a 21st century, right? Like wine is clearly a luxury, uh, a luxury item. Um, what is this? There's a big issue around food banks around the country trying to make sure they're allergy friendly staples for families who need them. Interesting. Um, that makes sense. That makes sense. In uh, I haven't heard so much in Israel. I, I should look into it. I have no idea um, if there are like special food banks for people who are who have allergies and and like. Um, in Israel, the big discussion is around the army, right? The much bigger question, right? The much bigger, the more pressing question in Israel is: um, is the army capable of providing for people who have allergies? Where for many years, until just a few years ago, um, the answer was no. Right. And therefore, celiacs got an automatic exemption uh, from army service because the army couldn't handle it. Um, and there's been a shift in the last few years to say, no, the army can handle it. Um, and therefore, they're not exempt. Um, so that gets a lot more press here in Israel than than food banks, um, because the army affects the entire population. Um, but. Uh, 
Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Anyways, well, if there are no more questions, uh, thank you everyone for a uh, you know for making me rethink these issues um, with you over the last six weeks. And uh, yeah, I look forward to learning with you in the future. Kayla, thank you for all your help. Uh, Noah, thank you for arranging. Um, and uh, yeah, if anyone wants to reach out, my email is there. So if you think about something later, do not hesitate to email. I can always send follow-up uh, sources. Um, okay. Have a good day, everyone. And uh, I think, is there another cheer later or that, that series finished? I mean, I think this is, this is kind of the last week of Winter's Mon. We have coming, well, uh, Fall's Mon. We have coming up a one-week Winter's Mon in the end of December, uh, going from December 26th to December 29th. And if you want to find more about uh, more about that, go to winter.dresha.org. But otherwise, this is it. This is it for Fallsmon for now. Okay. So then, everyone have a wonderful uh, Hanukkah. And yes, Noah says Dr. Shig's class starts in 18 minutes. So take a break, a breather, and um, those of you who are going there, enjoy. Okay, Hanukkah Sameach, everyone. And um, yeah, yeah, have a good day. You too. Bye.